I need to acknowledge right up front that there are some odd things, props that are hanging around the platform and nearby, and uh, I'll give attention to them right away so that it won't feel awkward as you just stare at them and go, how is that going to be woven in? So let's start off with that right away. Um, I have over here to my left the safe on top of some kind of Roman column thing. Um, it probably doesn't represent anything that you think it represents. I have right down here my headphones that Melissa knocked over and crushed, and I need a refund on whatever that was. I, I have books right behind me, and then down here I have my mail that I got. I've got uh, TIA Cref, some kind of advertisement piece. I've got... Uh, a newsletter from the Hillsdale College. I've never been there. I don't know how I got on that mailing list, but they send me stuff. A um, opportunity to subscribe to Architectural Digest, just in case you want that. It's their second notice, because I'm about to miss out on this opportunity. Um, if I need anything from the law offices of Ronald Webb, I've got that newsletter right there. Citibank loves me. Geico wants my business. Marcus by Goldman Sachs tells me over and over again how I can refinance my student debt. And yes, I still have some student debt. Got a wonderful card here. It's Happy New Year from the Sawyers, Monique and Brandon. Love that. Thank you very much. Should I read the background of what's happened? Okay, I'll do, later we'll do that. Um, I, I think sometimes I get more than one letter in a day from Capital One that really wants me to take out a credit card from them, and then a personal letter. Love that. Kind of my favorite. I let all the others go. And then, oh, look, it's from Paul. What? <laughs> Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So... Some of you knew that's where I was going long before I got there. But here's the point. If we were to take what happened 2,000 years ago, it would be a lot like that. This didn't come bound in a book with a collection of other letters. This was received by the church, the people at Corinth, and it probably came with other things, however things were delivered at that time. And somebody brought it into the congregation and said, hey, look, another really long letter from Paul. <laughs> this one's like 16 pages. I don't think we're going to get through it right away, but a letter. We just got a letter. <laughs> so we're going to come back to this in a few moments. Because the text comes out of that beautiful passage and speaks in chapter 1, verse 7, that we've been given all that we need in terms of our spiritual giftedness to accomplish what we have been called to do. Well, you probably know that during this month, we're looking at all the four readings that come in any given week for our worship on Sunday morning. And that's one of the readings, but there are three others. And I've said over and over again that it's important for us to recognize the unique characteristics of the things that we're reading because 
they come with different perspectives, different viewpoints, different points in history, different cultural context, and also different types of literature. So these other three props here reference that. This one, just like you got it in the mail, we get a chance to read a letter that Maybe it was originally intended for somebody else, but my guess is that it was intended for us as well. So this is the reading that we heard, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. We also have um, a passage that comes from uh, the uh, psalmist in Psalm 40, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49, and the Gospel of John. So I've got books right behind me here that are much like taking a book off the shelf. And I would propose that probably the Gospels read as much like the kinds of literature we're familiar with than anything else that we typically look at. So here we have what could be described as a biography. What's unusual about the four biographies we have at the beginning of the New Testament, is that most people, when they write a biography, they title the book by the name of the person about whom the book was written. Our four are not titled that way. We have the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, Luke, and John. So if we pull the biography off of the shelf for our reading, which is John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42, we find that not so much the authors gave it that title, because if you look closely at the writings, it appears that the authors of these four Gospels try to minimize their participation in this. They are trying to point toward the one that is called the Messiah. Those of us who have come afterwards have given these titles, and probably for the reason that it acknowledges God works through us. And when we read Matthew's gospel, Matthew has a perspective and an audience and a slant on this storytelling that's different than Mark's and is different than John's. And so when we pick the biography off the shelf and it's written by John, it gives us a particular perspective of a disciple that lived a long life and seemed to be very close to the Messiah during the earthly ministry of Jesus. So that's the gospel. Come back to that in a few moments. We also have Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Now, I... You might think, okay, this was going to be all about Roman power and economy and background and all of that. No, this represents something specific for me in terms of the type of literature. Isaiah is two primary characteristics. The words of a prophet, and most of it contained in poetry. Both of those pose problems for those of us who are used to biographies. The language is often far more dramatic, more colorful, more obscure at times. It's sometimes written in a way we're not exactly sure 
the subject matter. I don't know if you've read a poem and said, I, I wonder who this is about. In fact, I'm not even sure what the poet is trying to say. The reason I have this safe sitting over here, it's actually a safe from my childhood that my parents uh, eventually, a few years ago, gave to me to take home, and I've forgotten the combination, and there's a lot of stuff in here from my childhood, so I, one of these days I'll figure that out, and I'm sure it's incredibly valuable. So, with a safe, typically there is something that if you can unlock the safe, you'll have insight, you'll discover what's inside. For me, poetry, and particularly prophetic poetry, has that characteristic. If I can just unlock maybe what it's about or who it's about, something that will give me a little insight into what the, reader, the writer was getting at, now I'm a reader maybe 2,500 years later, trying to figure out how it might relate to me. And very often with both prophetic and poetic, the question arises, so is this about a nation? Is this about an individual? Is this about just that audience in that time? Is it about us now? I would propose to you that one of the reasons the prophetic poetic genre is included is because it's yes to all of those things. Sometimes it's Yes, both about an individual and about a nation. Sometimes it's intended for the people who read it in 600 B.C. and about me today. And that's the power of great poetry, is that it has this application that kind of peels away over time and through many circumstances, and we revisit it over and over again. Finally, we're at the Psalms which for me, this represents whatever your favorite playlist is. So I've got the headphones on, and they're noise cancellation, so I, you, anything you say won't bother me at all. I can't hear anything. <laughs> Not a thing. You talking? I can't tell. So this book, the Psalms, is a playlist for those who are worshiping at that time. And it becomes in some ways a playlist for us. However, there's a bit of a problem with it. And I think it's a significant problem. Um, the problem, I think, is, is best summed up in an interview. I played a portion of this interview. I think it was about three years ago. But it's an interview with Bono of U2 when he's interacting with uh, Peterson, Eugene Peterson, who um, wrote the Message Bible. And they developed a friendship over time. And in fact, Psalm 40 that we're looking at this morning, he has a song entitled 40, which is taken from this, does a marvelous job of grabbing um, the lines from the first few verses, and then really captures the essence of this entire psalm in the words that follow those first few verses. He was interviewed and was seated at the table with Eugene Peterson as a person was interviewing him. And he just started talking about the Psalms and how young he was when he discovered them. And he said, I realized right away, incredible lyrics, but too bad about the melodies. That was his line. 
And I loved the line because we don't have the melodies. So he takes Psalm 40 and sets a melody to it. It is a problem. It's a problem for several reasons. One is that we miss out on some of that which makes the psalm so powerful. The music that's behind the lyrics. I mean, the, the research about the, the combination of music and lyrics still unfolding, but it's really amazing. The work that's being done with those who are cognitively impaired or have some type of degeneration in cognition. Um, I don't know if you've seen some of the clips or some of the work that's come out recently where if you play some of the songs from that person's younger years, it's as if they come alive. Their affect may be hardly anything, but when they start hearing some of the music and words that resonate with two very important pieces. One is an older part of history, but it's also that the music gets stored in a different part of the brain. And when it gets activated, it comes alive in many ways. It's difficult to memorize Scripture. Sometimes most of the Scripture we know is because it's been set to music. And I think it's just a tragedy in some ways that we have not retained the music from these incredible lyrics. But make no mistake, they were intended to be a playlist. They were intended to be for those who wanted to sing their worship, embody their journey of faith. It was a way by which to connect the head and the heart. And so for those of you that that is, for you, the best way you worship, fantastic. It should be for all of us a part of the way we worship. But it also calls us to understand it a little bit differently when we go into Psalms. So Psalm 40 is the message um, from the Old Testament that we have this morning. And I want to tell you right up front that the message throughout all of these scriptures, the theme that weaves through is at least in part God's faithfulness and an acknowledgement that it's really not about your faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. Now you've been equipped, as the writer of Corinthians says, with everything you need for your spiritual journey, but he also clarifies not everybody's been equipped with everything for the body. That's been spread out among us for a very important reason, which we'll get to when we get through these passages. So it's God's faithfulness, not yours, that brings about reconciliation, redemption, sanctification of our journey. But we've been equipped for very important reasons. And in that being equipped we then have the opportunity to be vessels, let me rephrase that, collectively a vessel by which others come to hear the good news. I know you've heard parts of this story before because it is so important, but hopefully it pieces together in a way that's fresh for you. So this psalm, Psalm 40 that we're looking at, this playlist, 
It's interesting, Psalm, in that it's upside down. And here's what I mean by that. It starts off with this beautiful rendition of God being our Savior, our rescuer. He has performed great works, brought us through, and supplied all of our needs. It is this psalm of thanksgiving, psalm of praise, psalm of celebration. And our reading for this morning ends with verse 11. But starting with verse 12 and going to the end of the psalm, it takes just a nasty twist. Nasty in the sense that we've been celebrating all God's great and goodness, and all of a sudden, oh God, I'm in trouble. I'm going to sing the psalm of lament. I need your help. I need you to rescue me. So it's moved from you are one who has rescued us. You are the rescuer. And all of a sudden, circumstances are pressing in on me. I need you to do this for me. This is unlike most laments. Most crying out psalms end with a hopeful word. God, I trust in you. God, you are faithful. God, I'm looking forward to your redemption. God, you are so good. This one does just the opposite. It starts with all of the good and ends with the struggle. Seems so fitting in mid-January when we've come out of the Advent season with all of the great things that that represents. Oh my goodness, we celebrated Joyful Sounds of Christmas, the kids' musical, we had the the breakfast service in here. We had the Christmas Eve service, Christmas Day itself, whatever you do on Christmas Day. There is this celebration of the advent of God with us, living among us. And now we're mid-January. I've got to tell you, it feels pretty ordinary. All the decorations are down, put the last ones away yesterday afternoon. I don't see anything on the streets. All the radio stations have gone back to radio pro- regular radio programming. We have seen the last of It's a Wonderful Life for about 10 or 11 months. So in this ordinary time, circumstances flood in on us again. It's easy for us to start walking into life And it is as if Christmas and Advent is in the distant past. God, you came, incarnation, but wow, I was not expecting this. We talk about this over and over again. It's a theme of who we are to try and live into that ancient Hebrew saying, we walk backwards into the future. We lit at Christmas the Christ candle. Sometimes it feels like it's a bit off in the distance, but if we'll keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, realizing that if we keep our eyes fixed in that place, we will remember what Christ has done as rescuer, as redeemer, as salvation, as Lord of our life, so that whatever it is that's starting to press in on the circumstances, it gives us assurance that God has been the rescuer, is the rescuer, and will continue to rescue This Psalm 40 is perfect for today because it is the message that though Advent season has passed, the Advent is as real today as it was in the midst of the celebration on Christmas Eve.
So out of this psalmist, we come then to this passage in John. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42, tells us kind of the story of Jesus' baptism, but it never actually gets to telling us how the baptism went. It just kind of gives us the stuff before and the stuff after. It's as if the writer knows that everybody knows there was a baptism, and there's reference to it, but we are introduced to a character that's not the author but has the same name, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. And we mentioned last week, he's out in the wilderness, gritty kind of a person, and he's baptizing people. I will simply, as an aside, make mention that baptizing was not an uncommon practice in that day. It's not like it was a brand new thing. It was not only common in many settings, but it was common among the Jews. But here's the qualifier. It was not for the Jews. Jews weren't baptized. They were born into the faith. You don't need to be baptized, according to a Jewish person, into that which you already are because you were born a Jew. Baptizing was for those who came into the Jewish faith tradition were proselytes, were people who said, this is what I want to follow. I believe in the God you talk about. Primarily done by either the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, those in authority. So it's no surprise that we find in the Gospel of John that there are people in authority who are coming to John the Baptist and saying, what are you doing? You're, you're changing how we baptize. He's baptizing them into this understanding of the Messiah that the Messiah has come. And they are asking, are you, um, are you Elijah? Are you the voice of the one who has come? Are you even the Messiah? Are you Moses come back? It's interesting in all of this, John the Baptist as a literary character, it appears as if his sole purpose is to help us to understand the identity of Jesus the Christ. We know a little bit about John the Baptist, but everything in this gospel that we know about John the Baptist is immediately turned to point us toward who Jesus is. Because the purpose of this gospel, we're told by John at the very end, in chapter 20, verse 31, it says, I have come that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah, and in believing you might have life. That's what I want. And so here in this story, this character, John the Baptist, is used to point us toward Jesus as the Messiah, but it is unusual, John's throwing things upside down, because... Jesus is a Jew being baptized into something that is new and upside down. The Christ has come. I had uh, lunch this last week um, with uh, Jeremiah Kiley, and um, he was sharing with me one of the journeys he's been on on his um, spiritual walk. And I think he said that it was for the last seven or eight years, he has been looking at Scripture through a particular lens, and it is 
born out of a moment in his journey where he was just acknowledging that he had a whole lot of questions of God. And something prompted him to turn that statement backwards, and he asked himself, I wonder if God has any questions of me. I love that twist. And so he started going through the Bible and listing in his journal questions that he found in Scripture that God asks. If we were to start in Genesis, I think the first question that comes is the question where Adam and Eve are in the garden, but they're hiding, and God asks, where are you? I don't think God didn't know. I'm just saying, that's my opinion. I don't like us. Oh, don't scare me. Where are you? I, I think God knew. It's the question that's so powerful. Where are you? Ever since that lunch with Jeremiah, I've struggled with that question. If God asks that of me, and I don't just give the initial response while I'm standing on stage in a gymnasium with a bunch of people I love, I think it's more than that. D, where are you? I need to reflect on that question. Well, we have the first question in the Gospel of John in this reading. After the baptism, John the Baptist points to two of his disciples, points out Jesus as being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is part of John's confession. And a quick pause here. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. I just want to say, I think I have really done my spiritual dirt journey a disservice when I have limited the way by which I understand sin. Sin is typically viewed as um, just a, kind of a laundry list of those things that I shouldn't be doing, and let's just create a list of don't do this, and yeah, really don't do that at all, and please never again do that. That list maybe common things to many of us, but maybe some individual things, still puts me in the wrong mindset when I consider sin. If sin is anything that separates me from God, and Jesus came to take away all those things that separate me from being in relationship with God, if I can get away from this laundry list for a few moments and consider all of the things that begin to break down my relationship with God, I mean, just maybe things that seemingly are innocent, but take up enough of my time that I never get to this. I mean, it can be something that's no big deal for you, but for me, it, it takes my mind or my heart in other directions. It, it can be in an attitude or response to someone in my life. It can be a grudge I hold on to. I, I mean, some of these things you may go, yeah, that's on my list of things I shouldn't do, but if I actually let Jesus perform the work of Jesus to take away those things that separate me from relationship with God and I surrender to that, my life's going to begin to be molded, sanctified in ways that the areas of my life that never seem to have any hope to look like anything holy begin to be transformed because that's the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit if I will give myself to that. 
So, John points to Jesus as being the one. Two disciples leave John and begin to follow him. Here comes the first question. Jesus turns around and sees them and asks the question, hey, what do you want? I don't know if they were kind of lurking in the shadows. I don't know if they hadn't introduced themselves yet. But they were following him, and he knew it. And he finally turns around and cuts the awkwardness, and he says, what do you want? Again, what a fantastic question. Their response initially just seems so odd to me. Of all of the things you could ask the Messiah, their response was, so, where are you living? <laughs> what? I, there are a dozen questions I think I'd come up with before that. I don't know if they were just feeling nervous, but they basically asked, so where are you dwelling? Jesus' response is so beautiful. He says, oh, come, I'll show you. The question is amazing. What do you want? I mean, if you want to narrow it down and say in your spiritual journey, what do you want? Well, let's just open up the door to anything. God's just asking. What do you want? And on second read, I kind of love their question. Where do you dwell? I'd like, if I could, to be near you to learn. Jesus' invitation, yeah, come see. Sit down with me. Dwell with me. It's, it's this beautiful foreshadowing of John 14, where Jesus tells the disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. My Father will love you. We'll come... We'll dwell with you. How about that? Let's make it that easy. But let's dwell together. This is the invitation of the Gospel of John. I think one of the reasons that the people who put together the readings tied this Gospel reading with Isaiah is that in Isaiah 49, there are several pieces that are drawn on in the telling of this storyline of Jesus and John the Baptist. Almost as if there is a fourth telling of the circumstances that the Israelites were facing at that time, which it was written during their captivity in Babylon, and the discouragement they had about a promised land that was lost... A foretelling of those circumstances as well as a foretelling or foreshadowing of what was to come with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord, John the Baptist, and the one who came to take away the sins of the world, Jesus. So Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7, it tells us about this struggle that the Israelites are having. And it describes one who is to come. One who is to come who is to right wrongs. To set things in proper order. I love the description. 
And here's the word of the Lord coming through the prophet Isaiah. If I were to simply say that you would restore the tribes, that would be way too easy. Instead, I'm going to fill you with so much light that all nations will come to hear the good news. That's the promise in Isaiah. So the question is, and about whom is Isaiah speaking? Well, there's so much that makes it just sound like, well, this is the Messiah, talking about Jesus. And I guess I'd say yes. I think that this is the beautiful foreshadowing of the Messiah who is to come. But he's also very explicit in the passage, I call out to you, O Israel, you are to be my servant. Israel, you as a group of people will be the one who proclaims the good news to all nations. How fascinating that God entrusts the good news to group dynamics. That just doesn't make sense to me. But the message to that audience was, and to you, I'm giving and entrusting all the light of my goodness, my power, my grace. And you, if you figure this out, will be a light to the nations. So here we come to 1 Corinthians. By the way, that message in Isaiah is about God's faithfulness in spite of the disobedience of the nation. It's not dependent on the group, at least for the offer of God to the people to be my vessel. We're called to participate, and now we're back to the letter to the church at Corinth. Paul says, it's about Jesus and Jesus' faithfulness to us, but you've been equipped with everything you need for this endeavor. Paul goes on and on with this eloquent statement of what wonderful people they are. So glad I'm part of your life's journey. Wow, I thank God every time I think of you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. This church at Corinth, the very next verse after our section of reading Paul lays into him and says, I cannot believe what's happening there. Paul founded this church probably about 52 AD, and this is a letter back because he's been hearing news of their journey. And he talks about their differences, but their differences aren't the problem. It's that they've allowed their differences to divide. There is not a proclamation in this letter that if you just give yourself over to discipleship, you're going to find that everybody thinks alike and has the same perspective. Everybody's going to have a vision for the exact same thing. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying we must be united in our love for our Lord and our commitment to one another. 
I mean, he calls it out. Some of you, some of you talk all of the time about Cephas and all of the things Cephas wrote and Cephas taught. And others, all you can talk about is Apollos. And what Apollos did and what Apollos said, Apollos this, Apollos that. Some of you eat meat sacrificed to idols. And just see nothing wrong with that. Others never eat meat at all and get frustrated at those that do. Some of you talk about your spiritual gift of offering a prophetic utterance or a blessing over somebody else. And others have the gift of speaking in tongues and those who have their own particular gift act as if their gift is the only gift on earth. As if somehow it's better than anybody else's gift. These differences are just that. They're differences. When they become reasons to divide us, then we have ceased being the light to others. Because you know how they'll know us? Those who are followers of Christ, they'll know us by our love. And if that's not the characteristic of us, then there is no light going out from us. And this wonderful promise and reconciliation message of God gets stuck. If God needs to, God will make the rocks cry out. And some of you have probably heard the rocks cry out in moments when nobody else is expressing the love of God. But that's not how it's designed to happen. And you have been given everything you need. Not you individually, you collectively. And if for some reason, those of you who are followers of Cephas and have read everything that Cephas ever wrote, act towards somebody else who doesn't think exactly like that, that they are just imbeciles, and have not yet gotten the light yet to figure it out, you're living in a place of arrogance that's not anywhere close to your Creator. God created you with such beautiful differences and perspectives so that we might be molded into Christ's likeness, benefiting and growing from what somebody else brings to the mix knowing that what unites us is the Lordship of Jesus Christ, our commitment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself. When that happens, the differences become beautiful. When our focus is the differences and become divided lines, it becomes a little toxic. It becomes hard, but not the right kind of hard. Oh, there are challenges to living in community. Oh, yeah. Thank the Lord for those challenges because they are the very thing that mold us into Christ's likeness. But the challenges that come because we've stopped loving, we've stopped being humble, we've stopped seeking out God, but instead have become so consumed with the way I think things need to be done, that's when the divisions arise and the place starts smelling. But when love dominates, 
It's like just a little bit of salt that brings out the flavor of food. You go, ooh, I think I want more of that. That sure tasted good. I think I could use more of that in my life, not just my day. Oh, I have something to learn because that person over there, they grew up a different way, different culture, different perspective, different issues in their life. I'd love to hear more about their story. I'd love to hear more about God's story in them. And in that, I might find myself becoming more like Christ. Let me offer a prayer and invite the band to come. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your amazing word that through music playlists, through poetry, through biographies, through history, through poetry, prophetic word, you keep over and over again making it known to us that it's about your faithfulness that then inspires our devotion. Oh, Lord, will you please strengthen our faith. Give us courage to step into places that sometimes feel hard, difficult. But bind us together. Bind us together with your love. Help us to always be looking at you, Christ, the candle that kind of gives us an image to consider. You are the author, the perfecter of our faith. So whatever it is that we face, help us to keep coming back to that truth over and over again. And then help us to realize that for whatever reason, Lord, You've chosen to entrust this message to us collectively to work this out together. Both in our literal families and the difficulties that they sometimes pose, but also in this, our spiritual family. And likewise, the difficulties that that pose. Oh Lord, this morning, Give us courage to step into it. Grace to forgive us for the sins that separate us from you. And then, likewise, Lord, they separate us from one another. So please forgive us. May the seeds of your amazing grace push roots deep into our lives so that those things that are caught up in the corners of our journey will be pushed out and love will hold us steady. Oh, Lord, as we sing, may your Spirit work in our life, sanctifying us through and through, that we might be fully yours, individually and collectively this morning. Amen.